In today's video, we have an evidence-based guide to radicular low back pain and our friend, the disc herniation. Let's do it. Before we really get going, I have an absolutely free cheat sheet for you. So it is an evidence-based guide to radicular low back pain. It's a PDF. It's got a couple pages in it, and it goes over all of the key points of this lesson today. So go ahead and download it. I'll put a link in the show notes in the description and follow along. This is also very useful. If three months from now, you have a patient that walks through the door with a radicular low back pain, you're like, ah, oh, man, what the heck did Dan say about X, Y, and Z? Just pull out the cheat sheet. You'll get it, review it, and then you're going to ace your uh, examination with your patient. So how about treatment for chronic low back pain sufferers with low back pain? So we're just looking at acute low back pain. How about chronic low back pain? So folks have had pain for three months or more. So JSPT give a grading of B. The physical therapist may use thrust or non-thrust joint mobilizations to reduce pain and disability in patients with chronic low back pain with leg pain. Another grading of B. The physical therapist may use neural mobilization in conjunction with other treatments for short-term improvement in pain and disability in patients with chronic low back pain and leg pain. And a grading of D, physical therapist should not use mechanical traction for patients with chronic low back pain with leg pain based on the lack of benefit when added to other interventions. So it looks like if you have a patient that comes through the door, chronic low back pain with leg pain, then choosing to use thrust and non-thrust manipulation mobilizations may be beneficial for these folks. The other thing that might be helpful is neural mobilization. I was taught that quite a bit in PT school, continue to use it to this day. Seems like that's also a useful adjunct in these folks. So I think this is also really important to hear too, because unfortunately I think that we know a lot less than we'd like to know. So basically the evidence synthesis and rationale from the clinical practice guidelines for chronic low back pain with leg pain, a total of three randomized controlled trials comparing exercise training interventions to minimal treatment generally support the use of exercise training interventions for a patient with chronic low back pain with leg pain. One study examined a specific trunk muscle activation exercise program, while the remaining studies use multimodal exercise approaches. The studies do not clearly support one type of exercise training intervention. One randomized control trial with a large sample size supported the inclusion of postural exercise along with a multimodal exercise training intervention. Wow. We have a total of three studies to help us decide what type of treatment we should be using these folks, right? Um, I'm, I'm joking, obviously, but it's not a lot, right? I don't think we can really hang our hat on any particular type of exercise being superior. We'd like to see more and more research, right? The research right now is not as robust as we'd like it to be. So Jason et al. did a review article at 2021 looking specifically at people with radicular low back pain and peripheral neuropathies. The study was called Physiotherapy for People with Painful Peripheral Neuropathies, a Narrative Review of Its Efficacy and Safety. Now, the reason why I really like this article is because it was looking at folks that had true peripheral nerve sensitivity or radicular low back pain. We're not looking at a whole bunch of folks that have low back pain, and some of them have radicular back pain, and some don't, okay? And based on this review, looking at all studies or looking at stability and motor control exercises, the conclusion from this study was that stability motor control exercises might provide clinically meaningful benefit over minimal care. So basically, if we tell our patients, hey, you're going to do fine, just stay active, versus giving them some of these exercises, we're probably going to have a little bit better outcome probably with giving them the exercise, right? 
Also, there's no evidence of superiority to more substantial treatment interventions, including general exercise, right? So we don't know what the best form of exercise is for these folks. Do we need to take them through a general exercise plan? Do we need to give them stability and motor control exercises, nerve glides, McKenzie? Not really sure. Okay. How about neural mobility? Is neural mobility, nerve glides, tensioners, something you should be giving to your patients after they have ridiculous low back pain? Well, they seem to reduce pain compared to no or minimal treatment, right? So if you're not doing anything, again, looks like adding some exercise, neural mobility in this case seems to be beneficial. However, there's mixed evidence on this, right? So some research is showing uh, that this type of treatment, so nerve glides are better than other forms of treatment. Other forms of treatment and other studies seem to be better than nerve glides. We don't have the research. We need to be definitive, okay? And that's what this study came to the conclusion of is basically there's not enough evidence to make strong conclusions about neuromobility being better than other forms of treatment. If you guys like what you're learning about so far, then the next logical step is to sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course. I've made an absolutely free mini course and we go over four vital lessons for coaches and clinicians. The first lesson goes over how traditional schooling has failed us. Now, I'm actually a really big fan of education, and I think that physical therapy school actually prepared me pretty well to work with the average person. However, I really didn't learn how to work with the population that I want, which is people in the strength and fitness world. So I'm talking about powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting, sport of fitness, and really people that just love working hard in the gym. And really my goal at the mini course is to help you understand how you work with this population to get them out of pain and keep them training. The next lesson is seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym. So it's vitally important they understand the injury mechanisms or why people get hurt in the gym. If we don't understand why folks are getting hurt in the gym, it's going to be very hard to rehabilitate those folks because let's say we do get them better, they go right back in the gym and get hurt in the same exact way they hurt before. The other piece is if we want to keep these folks safe for the long haul, we have to understand the main reason why these folks get hurt in the first place so we can keep them in the gym training as safe as possible and minimize that risk of future injury. Next, we go over four simple steps for getting your clients out of pain. Now, rehab can be very complicated. There's a lot of systems out there that make it very challenging to figure out how to work with your patients. However, it really doesn't have to be that complicated. So I go over four easy steps you can follow to get your patients out of pain and back in the gym where they belong. Lesson number four is how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. Let's face it. The reason why you take these educational courses is obviously so you can learn a little bit more, but really the deep seat of reason is because you want to have the respect of your community. You want your clients to come in, work with you and say, wow, Joe was great. He did a phenomenal job with me tell their friends and their friends come to see you. And after a while, you're very valued and respected within your community. So I'm going to teach you how to do that. Second piece is that if you know these skills, it doesn't always mean you have a ton of patients going through the door so you can work with the population you want to work with, right? So you may be the absolute best coach in the world, but no one wants to come and see you because they don't know who you are and they don't know how good you actually are. So we'll teach you how to get the patients through the door that you want to work with. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification. This is the largest and most comprehensive educational course that I offer, but more on this later. So I'll leave a link in the description, in the show notes. Again, it's 100% free, really easy to download. Go ahead and do that right now. And now back to your learning. So how about McKenzie? Is McKenzie treatment better than other forms of treatment for a low, uh, ridiculous low back pain? Now, 
when I was in school, my school really hammered that if you have a patient that has pain extending below the knee, low back pain, then the first thing you should do is McKenzie treatments, right? Let's see if they have a direction of preference. Let's try to push them into that direction of preference. Let's try to centralize their symptoms over the course of time. You're going to get them better faster if you do this, right? What I found to be very interesting is that when I did this literature review for the lesson today, there wasn't a lot of strong research showing that McKenzie was a great way to treat radicular low back pain. In fact, I, I kind of found the opposite, right? I found very few studies about McKenzie treating radicular low back pain, and I found a lot of research about McKenzie for the treatment of more nonspecific low back pain, okay? So is radicular low back pain best treated via McKenzie treatments? I think we don't know yet, but let's dive into some of these papers to just kind of give you some more information about whether or not you need McKenzie for these patients. So this is a randomized controlled trial comparing the McKenzie method to motor control exercises in people with chronic low back pain and a directional preference from Mark H. Halliday et al. This was in 2016 from JOSBT. And basically, they were trying motor control exercises versus McKenzie exercises for their patients. The patients included had chronic low back pain, so pain greater than three months, and they included both radicular low back pain and non-radicular low back pain. So right there off the bat, I don't know if I can even use this study to say definitively that McKenzie would be a better or worse treatment for radicular low back pain because they didn't take out the folks without radicular low back pain right? So take that with a grain of salt. They also only included patients with a direction of preference, which initially they had 133 patients and only 45 of those patients had a direction of preference. So only one third of the, those patients had that direction of preference. So basically the other, I don't know, almost a hundred patients, you can't do McKenzie. Like that's kind of wild, right? So it's only a treatment that's potentially used for one third of patients. And the other problem with this study is they had no control group right? So what happens when you do nothing? Do those patients get better at the same rate? We, we won't know. This study basically doesn't answer that. You can see why I'm a little bit wishy-washy on McKenzie at this point in time. So at the three-month mark, they had the same outcome for pain as well as muscle thickness, okay? So no difference in pain or muscle thickness, although there are improvements in both groups. There was, however, a slight increase in the McKenzie group for the global rating of change, but this is a small difference, okay? Lastly, at the one-year mark, there's no difference between groups, all right? So based on what this study is saying, we can't really say definitively that McKenzie is a lot better than other forms of treatment, specifically motor control exercises in the long term. In the short term, at three months or so, seems like it's a little bit better compared to uh, motor control exercises from an outcome perspective global rating of change, but also keep in mind that this study had no control and also didn't distinguish between radicular and non-radicular low back pain. They just lumped them all together. So I actually have a really strong direction of preference to go ahead and just hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. I think your pain will be centralized. It'll go away incredibly rapidly just via subscription to the fitness pain-free channel. So give it a go. All right. So Albert and Manich also looked at McKenzie for the treatment of radicular low back pain. And they were actually using patients with mixed acute and chronic radicular low back pain. So this is good, right? Because we're actually using the population that we wanna see which treatment is best, right? And they had two groups. The first group was given information, advice, McKenzie exercises, spinal stability exercises, 
And right off the bat, we're not going to get great answers here because they use so many different treatments. We're not really sure which one gives the most benefit. What I will say is this is fairly typical in a physical therapy outpatient setting because most folks are going to get information device and a variety of different exercises, maybe some McKenzie, some motor control, some core strength, right? Group two was given information advice and low dose general exercise to promote circulation. So get things moving a little bit in their body, right? And if we look at the outcomes, there's no difference in outcome measures. They use the Roland Morris outcome measure. And there's a 0.8 point difference on a zero to 10 scale for current leg pain in favor of the McKenzie group, right? So basically if you give someone general exercise versus specific exercise in McKenzie, long-term, it seems like you have a little bit of improvement in current leg pain, right? But there wasn't a strong difference in the other outcomes, right? So can you say the McKenzie is much better than other forms of exercise? It's hard to say. Seems like specific exercise in McKenzie is slightly better, but to be honest, it's not a whole lot different from general exercise. At least in my mind, McKenzie is at least it's not the only way to treat chronic or acute radicular low back pain, right? It could be a, it can be a very effective tool in your toolbox, right? You may find that some people respond really, really well to this. That's great. But to say it's the best form of treatment, we don't know that. So how about injections for the treatment of radicular low back pain? Let's say you have a patient and you give them some exercises, they don't have any medical red flags, and they're not really progressing very much over the course of time. Maybe they get to the six week mark, they're not making any progress, they're dying, they want some relief really badly. We can send them back to the doctor to get some imaging, and then they can give them an injection, epidural injection into the spine. Now, if you look at the image here, apologize to the folks that are listening to the audio version of this, you can see where this injection goes. So largely they're taking a needle, it goes through the spine and it goes into the epidural space. They're going to release some sort of anti-inflammatory medication right into the epidural space outside of the spinal cord, right? And the reason why they do this is that we know that there is neuroinflammation in folks that have radicular low back pain, and we're trying to reduce that inflammation, right? So the combined evidence based on placebo controlled and active, excuse me, active controlled trials is level one or strong evidence for pain relief and functional improvements at one and three months and level two or moderate evidence at six and 12 months. So this is a, a Cochrane review. So very high level of evidence, right? I know a lot of folks are not big fans of Cochrane reviews, but that's the, the study I took. Obviously link in the show notes if you want to read it yourself, but Basically at the one and three month mark. So if you have patients kind of fresh out of a lumbar disc herniation with radicular symptoms, then there's strong evidence to show it helps these folks. And if you have a patient that's further out, so six to 12 months out, it's not as strong, but still a decent research to show that these injections work pretty well for those patients, improving pain and, or excuse me, improving pain and improving function. So I generally don't have a problem whatsoever telling folks if they're not making much progress to go ahead and get an epidural injection because they're minimally invasive. And as we'll see a little bit later, they're generally very safe, especially when you compare it to something like surgery. Is surgery beneficial for folks that have radicular low back pain? Yes, it's actually quite helpful. So folks that have pain, if you do this surgery, it really helps with their pain and their outcome, right? So what is the surgery? Well, it's referred to as an open discectomy or micro discectomy. 
So an open discectomy is a little bit of an older surgery. The micro discectomy is a little bit newer. The reason why you would consider a micro discectomy is because people generally have a faster recovery and it's less invasive. An open procedure, they have to cut open the skin and go in through the spine to try to visualize a herniation, right? And micro discectomy, they have a really tiny hole and a microscope that allows the surgeon to be able to do the surgery without having to really reflect back the muscle and poke through as much tissue, right? So what do they do with the surgery? So you have my spine here. If you're watching the video version, you'll be able to see this. Apologize to my audio folks. But if I turn the spine to the side, I can see the disc, follow the disc. This red little bulge here is a disc herniation, right? And it presses right up against the nerve here, which may be causing your patient's symptoms. So in an open discectomy, they would open up the spine to visualize this, and they would go in here and remove potentially some of the bone, some of the disc, and maybe some ligament. And what that does is it opens up the intervertebral foramen and gives a little bit more space for this nerve, hopefully reducing symptoms, right? And yes, this can be a helpful treatment for folks that have low back pain. So now the question becomes, we know surgery is effective, but what's the most effective? Should we try conservative treatment? Should we try injections? Should we try surgery? What's the best way to handle all this? Well, I think the first thing to think about is if your patient has moderate to severe myotomal issues, and you basically just saw them right after the injury, they may actually benefit from emergency surgery in the long term. Okay. But I'm talking about folks that are a little bit beyond that point in time or they have mild myotomal weakness, right? Should we do conservative physical therapy or should we do surgery, okay? The Spine Patient Outcomes Research Trial, SPORT, tried to answer this question. They took 501 patients with herniated lumbar discs. They compared surgical versus non-surgical treatments. Their surgical, uh, excuse me, treatment was open discectomy. The outcome measures they used were the SF36 and the Oswestry Disability Index. So both well-validated outcome measures for folks that have low back pain. Both the surgery and the non-operative treatment groups improved substantially over a two-year period. Improvements consistently were in favor of surgery for all periods, but that were small and not statistically significant, right? So if you read this study and you read that surgery wins at all levels, that wouldn't be fair because those results were not statistically significant. And what that means to me is that if you have a patient that does need emergency surgery, then it's definitely worthwhile to start with conservative care because we know that long-term outcome is going to be nearly identical. So we know that surgery as well as injections can be helpful for folks with radicular low back pain and disc pathology, but which one is better? So we'll be at all in 2021 look to answer this question. And they were looking at transferaminal epidural steroid injections. So the same thing we just went over previously. And they compared that against a group that had microdiscectomy surgery. They were using patients with a disc herniation and radicular low back pain. And they were up to one year out from the initial onset. So not super chronic patients, but from zero to one year, right? Pretty big breadth of patients. Here's the thing. There was a substantial improvement in each group. There was no difference between groups. And there were significant complications in the surgical group and the surgery was much more expensive. Okay. And that all makes sense. So largely, if you have a patient that's not progressing with conservative care, we can consider an injection, right? Cause we know that's going to be very similar in outcome to a surgery. And if they're not progressing, ultimately we can decide to do the surgery eventually, but the very least we should try the injection because it's as good as surgery for most folks. And it's much less invasive and much less costly. 
So when should we actually suggest surgery to our patients? We just talked about how conservative care is the way to go if someone has no medical red flags or severe weakness, right? Things aren't going well, we go with the injection, right? Now, your patient's still not improving with an injection, when do we start thinking about surgery, right? So before six months is suggested for surgery in patients with symptomatic lumbar disc herniation whose symptoms are severe enough to warrant surgery. Earlier surgery within six months to a year is associated with faster recovery and improved long-term outcomes. So if you have a patient that's not getting better with conservative care or injections, you might want to think about having surgery before that six-month mark-ish because if you have surgery before that six-month mark-ish, you're probably going to do better than if you wait one, two, three years down the line. We know that surgical decompression provides long-term, four years in this study, symptom relief for patients with radiculopathy from lumbar disc herniation whose symptoms warrant surgery. Another really interesting piece of information from this study is that it should be noted that a substantial portion, 23 to 20% of patients will have chronic back or leg pain. So a lot of patients have this expectation that when they have pain, if they get surgery, it's going to fix this thing 100%, right? That's very rarely the case for most surgeries, really. Some maybe, but a lot of them it's not. And at least with patients that get an open discectomy, about a quarter of those are still going to have substantial leg and back pain. So despite the treatment being beneficial for folks, it doesn't mean that you're going to get away with absolutely zero symptoms. It largely will improve what you have currently, though. The other thing I really tend to suggest is that people should hit the like button and subscribe to the channel before they consider surgery. Hitting the like and subscribe button really going to help you with your disc pain. And if you don't hit that, you might have to go down that route of surgery. So consider doing it. So let's break this down into a treatment plan. So essentially, there's a patient. They get radicular low back pain. How should we guide them through their care? Okay. Now, typically, the patient gets an injury, and if it's severe enough, they go straight to the emergency room, right? And from the emergency room, we need to rule out medical red flags, right? See if they have moderate to severe symptoms, and then refer that person to the doctor they need for emergency surgery if needed, right? Now, the next step is to have a follow-up. And the follow-up is usually done with a primary care physician, right? And for some folks, after they have radicular low back pain, the first person they see is the primary care physician, okay? So they need to have a follow-up because we need to assess for progressive neurological symptoms. So let's say the patient gets an injury and they go see the physician, right? There should be a follow-up in about a week to see if those symptoms are worsening. Are we getting more and more weak or getting more and more sensory loss? If so, that's a sign that we have an emergency situation, need to go to the doctor, probably get surgery right away, okay? If not, the primary care physician is going to see if the patient is improving, right? So let's say a patient has a disc herniation, radicular back pain, they go to primary care, primary care says, no medical red flags, come back in a week, let's make sure it's not getting worse, right? They come back, and it looks like things are actually getting better, right? At this point, primary care physician might say, you're probably going to get better. I don't think you need to continue doing much, right? Maybe give some advice about the prognosis, but say, hey, come back to me in a couple of weeks if you're not improving. If you're doing really well, then don't worry about it, right? So the patient leaves. And if they get better, then they don't even need to come back, right? But if they're not getting better, they come back to the primary care, right? Who says, I think you should try some physical therapy now, right? So now they come to see you. And largely, once you start treating them, 
If they're getting better over the course of time, great, keep going, right? However, the patient is not getting better over the course of time, we consider injections. So let's say you get the six, eight, 10 weeks, patient's not making any progress whatsoever. I may refer back to the physician and say, patient's in a ton of pain. Are there any next steps we can do with the thought that he's going to now do an MRI and potentially try an injection to reduce that patient's pain? Let's say they do that and they get the injection, they come back to physical therapy and we continue with care after that injection. If they're getting better, great. And you send them on their way, eventually discharge them and they ride into the sunset. And let's say they're not making progress. They're still having symptoms, right? Maybe they're getting out to three, four months out and they're still not making progress. At this point, I may refer back to the surgeon because at this point they may benefit from a discectomy, microdiscectomy. And the other piece that uh, to be aware of is that folks that get surgery a little bit sooner, so before six months to a year, tend to be a little bit better than folks that wait too long. So if your patient's still not getting better at that time, probably good to refer to a surgeon and the surgeon's going to be able to help out at this point, decide when to get surgery, if that's appropriate. The other important caveat is that oftentimes a physical therapist is as the first point in care, right? You may be the primary care physician yourself. So let's say it's a patient that gets, you know, searing, ridiculous, low back pain after deadlifting. They come to your uh, clinic the next day after the injury, you're assessing them. First and foremost, we're on the lookout for medical red flags. If there's no medical red flags, we start with our treatment. We closely monitor their strength over the course of time and make sure it's not progressively worsening. And if it's getting better and everything is improving, obviously we can just keep on pushing and let them kind of get better over the course of time. If things are not improving, we maybe send that patient back to the physician to get an injection, continue with PT over the course of time, not getting better, then consider surgery, send to the surgeon, and then see if the patient is appropriate at that point. So now that you have some evidence-based information about radicular low back pain, you still need to know how to treat these folks. Well, I have a case study for you where I break down a patient with radicular low back pain, show the exact treatments that I use, and show exactly how we got back to weight training over the course of time. I'm going to leave a link up here. You should go ahead and click on that and continue with the learning. Lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that thumbs up button. If you leave a comment, it helps the algorithm. I'd also love to know your thoughts on this presentation today. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps me out tremendously. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, please consider leaving me a positive review. Again, it helps tremendously. If you want to see more content like this in the future, we got to make sure we grow this over the course of time, right? And lastly, if you want to support me even further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain Free Insiders. This is going to be my premium subscription membership to Fitness Pain Free, where all my best content updated monthly uh, lives. So head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, click on Fitness Pain Free Insiders online library, just $1 for a week trial. Also leave a link in the show notes in the description. All right, go ahead and check it out. And lastly, I have all of my references and it's a God awful amount of references. And I know you can't read any of this. So if you really want to check out the references that I use, I recommend checking out the show notes link in description and you can see all the references that I use. And if you like them and you want to comment on them, leave a comment.